at the end of Daniel 9, we discover one of the most astounding and truthfully radical prophecies in all of the Bible. It's called traditionally the 70 weeks prophecy. And yet, as I noted last Sunday, this prophecy wasn't given to Daniel in a vacuum. Daniel is deeply concerned. He's 80 years old. He's been in Babylon for some 65 years. His time's running short. One empire has transitioned to another. And his heart weighs. He's concerned about the future of the people of Israel, his people, his city, Jerusalem, the temple. So for answers, he turns to Scripture, specifically the book of Jeremiah. And what Daniel discovers is that after 75 years in exile, if the people were willing to seek the Lord with all of their hearts, if they were willing to confess their sins, not blaming anyone but themselves, owning it, and repent, that God was willing to restore them, to bring them back to the land of promise. In response to what's revealed in Scripture, this old elderly man, he hits his knees. And in the majority of the chapter, we have recorded one of the most incredible prayers and all of Scripture. And then what happens next? We touched on this last Sunday, but we'll jump right back in with verse 20. Daniel 9, verse 20. Daniel says, While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin, and the sin of, of my people Israel, exactly as the Scriptures told him to, as I was presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, you get the notion, while he was speaking, the man Gabriel, the angel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, the last chapter, being caused to fly swiftly. He came with urgency, and he reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I've come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, so when he began praying, the command went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And that's where we left things off last Sunday. Now, before we dig into the particulars of this vision, which we will cover in its entirety, there are a few points that arose in our last study that are worth repeating because they're relevant. First, don't forget, Daniel's motivating concern, the concern that drove him to the Scriptures, and in which this vision will seek to alleviate Sinners not on world empires or the Gentile world at large, but on whether or not God still had a plan for Israel and the Hebrew people. As a result, we should note how this vision will be Jew-centric and not really have any bearing for the Gentile world, including a Gentile church. Secondly, not only does Daniel view the prophecies of Jeremiah as being divine in origin, he says at the beginning of the chapter, uh, he was reading the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. But Daniel viewed these words, the scriptures, as being literal. You see, when God said the people would be allowed to return, following 70 years in exile, Daniel believed the Lord actually meant 70 years. and wasn't speaking in code or somehow symbolically. Finally, we, we discussed last Sunday how Daniel realizes, as he's studying the Scriptures, that 70 years removed from the land had been specifically tied to a period of 400 years of the people's disobedience. 
In fact, in Leviticus, God had mandated that the people work the land for six years and allow it to rest on the seventh, the sev- the Sabbath year. Tragically, though, and we noted this again, that upon their arrival to the land of promise, the Israelites never obeyed this stipulation. As a result, Daniel realizes that their exile from the land was determined to last at least 70 years as back payment for what the land was owed. Jeremiah saw this with great clarity. Again, Daniel is not worried about Gentiles, about world empires, about Babylon or Medo-Persia. He's worried about the Jews, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, and their future. And it's in response to that that God sends Gabriel with the following word. Let's dive in. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Let's break down this verse kind of line by line. God begins, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, right from the jump, this translation of weeks from the original Hebrew is very misleading. The word here simply means seven. Seventy sevens is actually what's being written. Think about this word weeks as being very similar in use to the way that we use in the English the word a dozen. You know, twelve of something. As such, this phrase, 70 weeks, can be seen as being a reference literally to 70 couplings of seven. Now, the obvious and logical question centers on 70 couplings of what? Seven days? Seven weeks? Seven months? Seven years? Seven decades? As you study the Bible, please note that when faced with such a question, Always look for the context to determine the definition. It's a good rule. Like the entire point of the chapter is that Daniel, his mind has been chewing on what? 70 years? As it relates to 490 years. 490 years, we didn't allow the land to rest. So at a minimum, seven years, we're in exile. As a result, it is almost universally believed. Like there is consensus that God is laying out 70 couplings of 70 years. That 70 weeks is 490 years. 70 times 7. Next, notice what God determined, or literally marked out these 490 years for. He says 70 weeks are determined what? For your people and for your holy city. Now, consistent, again, with what's already on Daniel's heart, God is revealing to him that not only is he not done with Israel, but he specifically determined, again, set aside 490 years to finish his work and the lives of the Hebrew people, your people, Daniel's the context, and in the city of Jerusalem, your holy city. Now, aside from the radical nature of providing such a specific timeline, God continues by revealing to Daniel what he actually planned to accomplish during these 490 years. With the focus being Israel and the Jewish people, 
In fact, the rest of verse 24 gives us a list. A list of six specific items. Let's go through them one at a time. First, God tells Daniel that by the end of these 490 years, he will, quote, finish the transgression. Again, in the Hebrew, this word transgression, it means rebellion. But not just any rebellion. The definite article refers to the rebellion. In the course of these 490 years, God reveals to Daniel that he would end the original rebellion. The rebellion that began all the way back with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That original compulsion. The tendency within man to rebel. To resist the commands and the will of God. His Creator. God says He will cease. He will cease it. He'll bring it to an end. He'll finish the rebellion, the transgression. Harmony with man's Maker at the end of this 490 years, will finally be restored. Second, Daniel is told by the Lord that God will also make an end of sins. And let that settle in. Like, let those words say what they mean. With the desire to rebel, no longer within the heart of man, the manifestation of his rebellion will also cease. Sin and wickedness. The destructive behaviors of man, choosing to live apart from his creator on his own, it'll no longer exist in any way. Harmony with God, finishing the transgression, will manifest in in human righteousness, an end of sins. For the first time, again, since the Garden of Eden, man will no longer experience the destruction of his sin or the guilt of his fallen sinful state. Third, God tells Daniel that he will, quote, Make reconciliation for iniquity. In the original, this word iniquity spoke more than just a behavior. It spoke of the consequences or the results of behaviors. In order to finish transgression, in order to make an end of sins, God would have to act on behalf of mankind to first cover over his sin by providing a permanent atonement. You see, the intervention of God was the only way that man could be reconciled, reconciliation, with his creator. You see, for man to live in harmony with God and experience righteousness, his sin had to first experience its just demands. Sin. The wages of sin is death. Sin requires death. And there is no way around this reality. At the very beginning, before sin entered the equation, God had been clear Adam and Eve, if you rebel, if you eat of this fruit, in that day you will die. Sin equates to death. And there's no way around that reality. God is telling Daniel, though, incredibly, that by the end of these 490 years, he would solve this great human quandary. Fourth, God says that when these 490 years were completed, he will have ushered in everlasting righteousness. Now, it's true that this could refer to individuals. You and I do possess in Christ an everlasting righteousness. But the application, it's much broader than that. Like God is not only speaking of individuals, the fundamental transformation of people. But he's speaking of the righteous ordering of a brand new society. 
to bring in, to usher in everlasting righteousness. You see, when it's all said and done, God will bring into this world a kingdom not of this world that will last forever. He will establish at the end of these 490 years a culture based on what is right. Fifth, over the course of these 70 couplings of seven years, God promises to, quote, seal up vision and prophecy. This word seal up, to seal up, it means to literally affix one seal. Like not only will all prophecy be fulfilled by the end of these 490 years, but God's ultimate vision, his plan for the ages, will have finally come to fruition. When this determined, set-aside framework, time frame, was completed, God is telling Daniel there will no longer be anything more that he needs to accomplish in this world. Finally, God tells Daniel he will, quote, anoint the most holy. Admittedly, the word choice in the Hebrew is it's, it's iffy at best. It's not quite clear. While the idea behind anointing undoubtedly implies consecration, it's difficult to be dogmatic as to what the most holy refers to. There are some that believe that it's a reference to the anointing of the Messiah and the, the kingdom. The anointing of Jesus, his reign on the earth, maybe. Others still see it as being a reference to the new Jerusalem that will come in the future, maybe. Like in reality, it could apply to both. I think if we're being fair this morning, while we can all agree that this is quite an incredible list of things that God planned to accomplish during these 490 years, from our vantage point, right? Our vantage point some 2,600 years later. I think we can admit, we can agree, that very little of this list today has actually been fulfilled. Like sure, you can probably say that number three on the list, to make reconciliation for iniquity, was achieved by Jesus. When he took upon himself the righteous demands of our sin, through his death on the cross. Jesus indeed, most gloriously, provided us a permanent atonement for our sin. That is possible. And yet, again, if we're being fair and honest, beyond number three, like it's really hard to make the case that any of the other five have been fulfilled, right? I mean, think about it. Has God finished the transgression? Like brought an end to the rebellion? No. Has he made an end of sins? Let me ask you, are you done sinning? You look at our world and think, yes, sins are over? Like, I can confidently say he hasn't. Has the Lord ushered in an everlasting righteousness? Like, if this refers to a new society, not even slightly. I mean, as you read your Bible, do you come across any prophecy still needing to be fulfilled? Absolutely. Has God anointed the most holy? not in any official sense or capacity. You see, the fact that so much of this list presently remains unfulfilled gives us the impression the majority of this list still has a yet future fulfillment in history. Let us see what else God reveals to Daniel. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand 
that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Regarding the beginning of these 490 years, God tells Daniel the clock, the stopwatch, will begin with the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. That's, that's clear, right? Rather straightforward. And yet, in much the same way that the Hebrews had been taken by Babylon into exile in three separate waves spanning 18 years, the Bible provides their return to the land occurring through four separate commands issued by three different Persian kings. In 538 B.C., during the first, the first year of his reign, King Cyrus issued the original decree, giving the Jewish people the legal standing to return to their homeland in order to rebuild their temple. As a result, a man by the name of Zerubbabel leads a group of, a, of roughly 50,000 Hebrews back to the land. The goal, rebuild the temple. Sadly, after a valiant start, the temple's foundation gets laid, but the project, it ends up being abandoned for like two decades. Now, to restart the campaign and appeal for more funding, in 517 B.C., King Darius, who is an entirely different Darius than the one we're introduced to in Daniel, this Darius issues a second decree, reiterating the legal standing that Cyrus had given the Jews regarding the rebuilding of their temple and the funding. While Zerubbabel is credited for rebuilding the temple, and rightfully so, a man named Ezra will be praised for leading a spiritual revival. Another return, but a spiritual renewal. In 458 B.C., King Artaxerxes issues a third decree, allowing Ezra to lead another group back to the land in order to institute some much-needed reforms. Things were kind of chaotic. And yet, as awesome as that would be, and it's a story in and of itself, this third decree of Artaxerxes had nothing to do with rebuilding the city, the streets, or the walls. Now, as you study these things, keep in mind, none of these first three commands allowed the Hebrew people to return in such a way that it would fit within the particular parameters described for us in Daniel 9, verse 25. Like, our text is clear. Look again. The command designed to initiate this 490-year prophetic timeline had nothing to do with the people returning. In fact, it had nothing to do with the rebuilding of the temple. Instead, the command would be unique in that it allowed the Jewish people, look again, to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, historically... We understand that this command, the command that fits these parameters, was ultimately given to a man named Nehemiah by, again, King Artaxerxes, occurring on March 14th, 445 B.C. Not only does the story recorded for us in the book of Nehemiah document the particulars of this very command and event, but it also confirms a reality of the prophecy that the street shall be built again and the wall in troublesome times. If you read through Nehemiah, you'll discover that the construction of the city, and particularly the walls, the streets, was fraught 
with all types of challenges and difficulties. Troublesome times might be an understatement. With the understanding that this 400-year prophetic timeline began with the command of Artaxerxes on March 14, 445 B.C., which would be the first day of the month of Nisan, according to the Jewish calendar, God also reveals to Daniel something else. He reveals an important second event in direct relation to this command and subsequent date. He, he says, look at it again, know and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, March 14, 445 B.C., until, what? Messiah the Prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. As God continues this prophecy, he mentions here the culmination of seven weeks, which would be what? Seven couplings of seven years or 49 years. And then 62 weeks. 62 couplings of seven years or 434 years. Now, extrapolating out 49 years, these seven weeks from 445 B.C., you'll land in the year 396. Now, what's interesting about this 70 weeks prophecy is that we aren't told specifically what would happen after these 49 years. Theories range all over the place. Likely the most compelling is that this is a reference to the completion of, of Nehemiah's rebuilding of the walls, which is why we're, we're given the reference of the streets and the walls being built in troublesome times. A another theory that has some credibility is that this could actually mark the conclusion of the Old Testament Scriptures. In truth, we don't know. And yet, while vague on that issue, God is absolutely crystal clear what would happen in Israel at the conclusion of these seven weeks and 62 weeks, the com combination of them, or 483 years, 49 plus 434. So 483 years, seven weeks and 62 weeks from Artaxerxes' command, what would happen? Messiah the Prince would be revealed to Israel. <laughs> now, regrettably, most Bible studies on the 70 weeks prophecy will, will quickly take like a hard turn at this point, getting into date setting. And if you're interested in these things, the quintessential work done on the topic was by an Irishman named Sir Robert Anderson. He extrapolated 483 years using the Babylonian calendar of 360 days to refer to 173,880 days. Then, taking these days, he makes necessary adjustments for the, the Julian calendar, reaching the conclusion that Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, fulfilling this prophecy, occurred on April 6th, 32 A.D. If you're interested in how exactly he reaches these conclusions, I've included a PDF at the bottom of the page on c316.tv for reference. Like the truth is no one can say for sure what the date would have been 483 years from March 14, 445 B.C. And why is this? 
Well, the calendar, going from Babylonian to, to a Roman calendar, and the designation of how many days existed in a year, especially then when you factor in leap years and all these other things, it gets really funky and murky. Like if you take a dive into these things, while I kind of am inclined with the theory exposed by Sir Robert Anderson, if you dive into it, you will find more recent uh, commentators mounting compelling challenges. No one knows the actual date. That said, like what we can say for sure, and don't miss this, this is important, we can say with 100% complete certainty, while we might know, not know the date, is that 483 years from the command that happened March 14, 445 B.C., 483 years later to the day, Jesus of Nazareth does make a triumphal entry into Jerusalem where the people hail him as their king. Building off of this amazing revelation of Daniel's prophecy, Zechariah the prophet, who was a close contemporary, he would add another interesting detail about this event. He writes in Zechariah 9, verse 9, he exhorts the people, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. Let me read for you the fulfillment of these prophecies as recorded in Matthew chapter 21 and Luke 19. We read that the disciples brought a donkey to Jesus. They laid their clothes on him. They set Jesus upon him. And a very great multitude, they spread their clothes on the road. Now this was the road from the Mount of Olives going into Jerusalem. As Jesus is making his way, we read how others begin cutting down branches from palm trees, spreading them on the road. As Jesus makes his way, the multitudes who went before and those who followed, so before and after, they're crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. While that's happening, we're told that some of the Pharisees called out to Jesus from the crowd. They said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus said to them, I tell you that if these, speaking of the people, should be silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Continuing, we read how Jesus drew near and he saw Jerusalem and he begins to weep. And he says, if you had known, even you, especially in this note, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment, an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side. They'll level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation like whatever the specific date ended up being april 6 32 a.d or something else regardless jesus confirms that his arrival into jerusalem on this day indeed took place exactly 483 years from the command given by king artaxerxes as revealed to daniel in this very prophecy you should have known the time of your visitation. It's clockwork. It was set. It was a day I couldn't miss. To the point that if the people were to be quiet, even the rocks would cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, that's awesome, isn't it? And as awesome as that is, that's not the end of the prophecy. Like God has more 
to explain to Daniel. Again, I noted how, how God not only answers the man's prayer, he goes above and beyond. Verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, pause real quick. I, I got to get something out of the way. Like in the Hebrew, that, that's not as confusing as it translates into English. Like, like first, understand that we have a sequencing of time. Like first, there was a set of what? Seven years. Seven years, 49 years, seven weeks. This was then followed by a second set, right, of 62 weeks or 434 years. In fact, they were just referenced, seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now verse 26 picks up after the second set within the sequence. This reference of 62 weeks is in reference to the combination of the seven weeks and 62 weeks the 49 years, and the 434 years, meaning after 483 years. So, so don't let that be a hang-up. In the Hebrew, it's not nearly as confusing. But after the 62 weeks, the, the combination of the 7 and the 62, once the 62 are done, coming after the 7, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Following the presentation of Jesus to Israel as their Messiah, 483 years after the command, God now reveals to Daniel, well, really what would have been shocking, to say the least. God reveals that after Jesus the Messiah is presented to Israel, so after the 483-year mark, Two terrible things would happen. First, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. While the long-awaited Messiah would reveal himself to Israel, tragedy would strike. In the Hebrew, this word translated cut off, it describes not only a violence, but something intentional, an intentional death. This wasn't an accident or a mistake. God is revealing to Daniel that after his grand reveal, the Messiah would be formally, legally, officially executed by the people. Again, with the benefits of hindsight, we see how this was fulfilled. And the trial, the arrest, the trial, the execution, crucifixion of Jesus Christ following His triumphal entry. But that's not the only thing that would happen after the 483-year mark. Secondly, because the Jewish people rejected Jesus as their Messiah, Daniel is also told the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, the temple. The end of it, or, or the destruction, after the destruction, shall be with a flood. This idea of a flood, it, it implies a dispersion of whom? The Jewish people from the land. That would result as well. The city would be destroyed, the temple destroyed, the people dispersed, and till the end of the war, desolations would be determined. Total destruction. <laughs> Daniel, when he's receiving this prophecy, keep in mind, right? Where is he? He's in Babylon. After what? Being taken into exile. What followed destruction? Like Daniel longs to see the Jewish people return to their homeland. He longs to see Jerusalem rebuilt. He longs to see the temple and its practices reinstituted. Like, can you imagine what this must have been like for Daniel to basically hear... Yes, the people will go back, the city will be rebuilt, the temple will be reinstituted, 
But everything that you've experienced will happen again. (laughs) That history will repeat itself. That the city will again be destroyed, the temple again left in ruins, and the people again exiled. Everything, Daniel, you've gone through, yeah, everybody will be able to come back, but it'll happen again. How that must have broken his heart. Again, in line with the very thing that Jesus even predicted would happen during his triumphal entry into the city. As a result of them missing their visitation, what would result? We know that this section of Daniel 9 was fulfilled historically. When in 70 AD, Titus Vespasian came into the region, utterly destroyed Jerusalem, demolished the temple, not leaving one stone upon another, scattering, as a result, the Hebrew people around the globe where they would remain until the 20th century. Let's look at the final verse. There's more. Verse 27, Daniel 9. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Look again how this starts. Then he shall confirm a covenant. Now the obvious question, when you get to verse 27 is the identity of this masculine pronoun, he. Like, who is he that confirms a covenant? And while we aren't given a specific answer, there is no doubt that the passage provides more than enough clues as to his identity. As a general rule for studying Scripture, never forget an antecedent like he will always revert back to the most recent reference another rule of thumb like as such we can conclude the he in verse 27 connects directly back to whom well the people of the prince who is to come the prince and he are the same now because we know the roman empire fulfilled the prophecy in verse 26 by destroying the city and the sanctuary we understand the prince who is to come right it can't be titus vespasian right Why? Because he's being described to us in a future tense. The people of the prince destroy Jerusalem and the sanctuary. The people of the prince, this prince who is to come, that's still future. The implications being that the he, being referred to in 27, connecting to the prince who is to come, would likely be a descendant of Roman descent of Roman heritage, Roman lineage, more broadly, you might even include, of European descent, stemming from this revived Roman Empire we've seen already prophetically mentioned in Daniel. Now, the other significant clue as to this man's identity is found in what he actually ends up doing. Like We're told in in this verse that he, the prince to come, shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wings of abomination. So he does something that's abominable or very, very appalling, shocking. Shall be one who makes desolate. So what he does is a severe desecration. He'll do this even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Let's unpack that. Now, in line with other passages of Scripture, including the next few chapters that we'll be studying in Daniel. This man, he, the prince of the people to come, 
this man who commits this abomination of desolation, again, connecting other passages of Scripture, including what we'll see in Daniel, this abomination that causes desolation is when this man enters the temple, we're told specifically, bringing an end to sacrifice and offering, declaring himself to be God. We know this man, again, in future tense, to be the Antichrist, also noted in Scripture as the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. In Revelation, he's called the beast, the little horn already in Daniel, the son of perdition, referenced by Paul. The reason that this section of Daniel is of such importance is that it provides for us a very specific marker for when this final week, this final seven years of God's 490-year timeline in dealing with the Jewish people will begin. Additionally, we're also told what would happen in the middle of the week or at the three-and-a-half-year mark, as well as how these seven years would ultimately conclude the consummation, which is determined, being poured out on the desolate. Now, for starters... These seven years, these final seven years, the 70th week, it commences when the Antichrist confirms a covenant with many for one week. Now, while in context, we understand this would undoubtedly include the nation of Israel, this covenant, the implications of a covenant with many tell us that this is a far-reaching peace accord. From a planet in turmoil, the Antichrist is able to get the world, the powers of the world, to agree to a seven-year peace. Now, what the world doesn't know is the covenant, this covenant signed between the Antichrist and many re-engages God's prophetic clock. Additionally, in the middle of the week, we're told, or at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the middle of these seven years, what happens? The Antichrist turns against the children of Israel. Not only does he commit this abomination of desolation, but in other passages of Scripture, we're told that a systematic persecution of the Jews begins. Jesus will refer to this as a great tribulation. In Matthew 24, Jesus will actually reference the abomination of desolation, saying what? That it was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Most notably, Jesus will do this by placing the fulfillment as still being future. Finally, we also know from this verse what will happen at the end of these seven years. We're told at the end, the consummation, or literally, the complete destruction, the termination, the annihilation is finally poured out on the desolate. Connecting this with other passages, describing Jesus' second coming at the conclusion of these seven years, we understand that the Antichrist and his rebellion will be crushed. He'll be cast into the lake of fire, and all those who have taken his mark of allegiance will be placed into Hades to await the great white throne judgment. Now, broadly speaking, there are two components about the 70 weeks prophecy that we have no doubts concerning at all. 
Two things we can say with 100% certainty. And follow me here, because a lot of people like to diminish this, uh, excuse it away, or flatly ignore it. There's two things we know for certain. First, 483 years or 69 weeks of God's determined 490-year timeline have absolutely clearly taken place. We can say that with certainty. Like historically, we know the exact day, the scriptures recorded it, that the command was issued to rebuild Jerusalem. Subsequently, Jesus confirms the very day Messiah the Prince was revealed according to the prophecy. We know these things. Furthermore, after these 483 years, what the prophecy describes, but before the beginning of these final seven years, we also see these things fulfilled in history. We see them fulfilled when the Jewish people unjustly and tragically executed Jesus as their Messiah, rejecting him. In response to that, there is no mistaking how God allowed the Romans in 70 AD to destroy the city and the sanctuary, again exiling the Jewish people across the world. 483 years, or the first 69 weeks, of God's determined 490-year timeline we know have taken place. We can look back in history and see it clearly. The second thing that we know for sure about the 70 weeks prophecy is that in addition to five out of the six items on God's to-do list not being presently accomplished, this final week or seven-year period of time has no clear historical fulfillment this last seven years we don't see in history in 70 a.d titus may have brought an end to sacrifice and offering because well he destroyed jerusalem and the temple but we have no reference no evidence at all of him confirming a covenant with many for seven years or committing this abomination of desolation no reference at all you see, in light of this reality, you are only left with one conclusion. God's determined 490-year timeline for Israel was placed on pause following the rejection of Jesus and that the events of this final 70th week or seven-year period of time still remains future, even in our present day. Like to this point, like I should add that like reading a prophecy and there being a pause in its fulfillment, you know, where you see part of it fulfilled and then there's a long period of time where it takes for like the next line, like that's not an abnormality or uncommon when it comes to prophecy. Like let me just give you one, one example. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus enters the synagogue there in Nazareth and, and we're told that he asks for the book the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He opens up the book and he finds the place where it's written. Now, Jesus will read from Isaiah 61. And follow me here. He will read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And at that moment, we're told that Jesus closes the book, gives it back to the attendant, sits down, all eyes are fixed on him. And then he says, today, the scriptures, referring to Isaiah 61, what he had just read, are fulfilled in your hearing. I've fulfilled this right now. 
Now, I want you to look very quickly at what Jesus read, the section he read in Isaiah 61. It's prophetic about the Messiah. Jesus says, this is fulfilled, but follow. Isaiah 61, the first two verses actually read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Everything Jesus has just quoted. Jesus stops at proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But if you go to Isaiah 61, what follows? And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Jesus stops was to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He doesn't continue because he hadn't fulfilled that part yet in his first coming. There's a pause between the acceptable year of the Lord and proclaiming the day of vengeance of our God. You see, it's not abnormal to be reading through a prophecy for a part of it to be fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, but then there to be a pause waiting the rest of its fulfillment to occur in Jesus' second coming. So finding this in Daniel 9, a pause, isn't crazy. It isn't without precedent. In fact, it's common. It won't be until the second coming that Jesus fulfills declaring the day of vengeance. You need to know, Daniel 9 is critical to, to your and mine ability, to our ability, to understand future prophecy. It's critical. And the reason it's critical is that it establishes for us the skeleton of what is known as the Great Tribulation, this period of seven years. In fact, the case can be made that without the 70 weeks prophecy, the book of Revelation, as well as Jesus' teaching on the end times known as the Olivet Discourse, would make little to no sense at all. It would lack context or framework. Because of Daniel 9, we know that at some point in the future, the Antichrist will come onto the world stage by achieving the unachievable. He will achieve a seven-year peace in the Middle East with many, including Israel. We can even surmise that maybe, possibly, the building of a new Jewish temple in Jerusalem alongside the Dome of the Rock might very well be a central component of the covenant. Again, there has to be a temple for the Antichrist who put an end of sacrifice and offerings. Furthermore, we know that when that happens, when this covenant is reached, this final period of seven years, the 70th week God determined for Israel will commence. You can pinpoint it. You can nail it down. It's evident. Now, there might be some debate as to what will exactly happen over the course of these first three and a half years. But again, at the middle marker, Daniel 9 makes it clear what takes place. The Antichrist will desecrate the temple, erecting an abomination, and then initiate a period of Jewish persecution the world has never seen. Furthermore, at the end of these seven years, like clockwork, Jesus comes again, his second coming, crushes the army's of the Antichrist in the valley of Megiddo and establishes his kingdom, renews the earth, sets up his throne for a thousand years. Daniel, he's on his knees before the Lord. He wants to know what God's plans are for the Hebrew people. He's praying supplications. And not only does God answer his request, 
by ensuring he wasn't done with Israel. But God provides in this chapter and this prophecy a specific timeline for not just what he was planning to do, but when he was going to do it. It's astounding. In closing, I do want to address an overarching question that should arise when studying the 70 weeks prophecy. If God's timeline was paused, following Israel's rejection of Jesus, leaving still a final seven-year period where God's got to wrap a whole bunch of stuff up, what's holding back that prophetic clock from re-engaging? That's an obvious and logical question. Now, to answer this question, I want to read two important New Testament passages written by the Apostle Paul that shed light on the answer. In recapping a section in his first letter concerning the end times, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 through 8, he says, And now you know what is restraining, that he, and in context this is the Antichrist, may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, and again in the context, this is the Holy Spirit, he, will do so till he, the Holy Spirit, is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, the Antichrist, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Like First, Paul, in 2 Thessalonians, notes how the current work of the Holy Spirit in the world must stop, it has to cease, before the Antichrist is even revealed. That's what 2 Thessalonians tells us. Now, related to this idea, Paul will also write something interesting in Romans 11, verse 25. He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. And again, in chapter 11, Paul is talking about God, kind of switching from his focus and ministry in Israel to now the Gentiles in the church. He says, I don't desire that you should be ignorant of that mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. He adds, the blindness in part has happened to Israel, and here's why, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, I mentioned in our lead-in to kind of this prophetic section in Daniel, that the emergence of the Gentile church in place of the nation of Israel had been completely hidden from the view of the prophets. As such, Daniel, his only concern was God's plan for the Jewish people. The church isn't even in his mind. You see, it's my position that the reason for this prophetic pause and God's handling with Israel, the reason that there's a pause between the 69th week 483 years, and the 70th week, this last seven-year period, and the fact that Daniel provides no explanation for this pause, was that his attention, God's attention, shifted in that moment when the Jews rejected Jesus onto a church that was made up largely of Gentiles who accepted Jesus. Again, that's something Daniel couldn't see, so he would never have referenced See, I believe and can contend that situated between verses 26 and 27 is what we would theologically call the church age, or as Jesus would reference, the times of the Gentiles. And yet, Daniel 9 is explicit that at some point in the future, God's attention 
will shift back again to his dealings with Israel for a time on on the church, but it will come back to Israel. Now the question centers on why and when. Understand, there is no evidence that the rapture of the church begins the great tribulation. That's not what Daniel 9 says. It's the confirming of this covenant for a week. That begins the seven years, not the rapture of the church. That said, it's only logical that the two are chronologically linked, likely connected. You see, drawing from the Second Thessalonians passage, as well as, as Romans 11, I believe that God has determined a specific plan for the Holy Spirit's work in the world through the church. Israel rejects Jesus. The Gentiles embrace Him. The Spirit is poured out in Pe- Pentecost. A new work begins. God presses pause on Israel and he turns to a new work. The Holy Spirit through the church. And yet, that work, once it's completed, once God's work and the Holy Spirit through the church is done, and the church is removed, the Spirit removed, the pathway will be established for the Antichrist to be revealed. And once that happens, a covenant reached. And Daniel's 70th week initiated these seven years. In fact, this phrase that Paul uses in Romans, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, it it might indicate that God's prophetic timeline for Israel is on hold until the very last man or woman, Gentile, repents of their sin and accepts Jesus as their Savior. When the fullness of the Gentiles, the completion of the church is is discovered, could it be, and I'll end with this, that the very last remaining domino to fall, that sets in motion the final chain of events, Daniel's 70th week, is you finally surrendering and giving your life to Jesus. Could it be the last domino is you accepting Christ as your Savior? So, Father, Lord, a powerful passage of Scripture. We're so moved by it. 